Our scripture reading this morning is from Romans chapter 9. I'll be reading the first 13 verses. Congregation, listen carefully. This is the very word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Pray with me. Father in heaven, the Bible is indeed unlike any other book. For in here you have disclosed mysteries from ages past. In here you have disclosed the only way to salvation. And Father, man in his natural state is not equipped to understand this. For spiritual things are spiritually discerned. And so we lift our voices to you now and ask that by your spirit you would grant us understanding. That you would allow your word to settle in our heart, to take root. That we might be conformed more and more to our Savior. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The great Princeton theologian of the late 19th and early 20th century, B.B. Warfield, wrote in his book entitled The Plan of Salvation that there are fundamentally two doctrines of salvation. That salvation is from God and that salvation is from ourselves. He then traces some of the historical differences within the church as it 
pertains to the unfolding of the Bible's doctrine of salvation. And the core question of his thesis is this. In salvation, does God act according to a plan? And if so, how certain is it? He finds a kind of ironic inconsistency in that movement of Protestantism called evangelical. For central to this evangelical understanding of salvation is the intimate personal communion between the believer and God. The concept of an individual relationship with God is at the core of the evangelical profession of faith. I relate to God directly without the need for any human mediator to be in the way. I have direct access to my mediator, Jesus Christ, and through him, I have direct access to God. God knows me. He's numbered the hairs on my head. He knows my name. And yet when it comes to God's activity and salvation, Warfield finds that many in the evangelical community affirm a position that is not individualistic, but general and universal. That is, what God did in his saving work, he did not do for the individual, but he did it for everyone in general. Warfield argues that this has strong implications as to what is underneath God's plan of salvation and really as to whether there is any plan at all. Does God have a plan that, with, with uh, the, the underlying idea that he will save the individual? Or does he merely have a plan to make salvation uh, available to everyone but assured for no one? Warfield concludes that it is the doctrine known as Calvinism where we find the most consistent expression that salvation is from God alone and that God savingly acts according to a plan formed in his eternal wisdom and carried out according to his sovereign care. Romans, and specifically the first eight chapters, presents us with what I believe is the most comprehensive expression of justification by faith alone in all the Bible. The first eight chapters are unrivaled as to the extent in which they unpack this doctrine. This epistle, this letter of Paul to the church at Rome, was written to an audience that consisted of both Jews and Gentiles. And he says in chapter 1 that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. But man sits condemned. And out of this condemnation, his heart is hardened. And he is immersed more and more into all sorts of evils. By the end of chapter 1, we find that man is even encouraging others to participate with him. In chapters 2 and 3, Paul places Jew and Gentile alike under the guilt and dominion of sin. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 
And so the Jewish program of justification by works is destroyed. He concludes chapter 3 saying, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. And then in chapter 4, he raises up Abraham for our consideration. Abraham, that Jewish hero of old, that one believed to be righteous through his works. And Paul says Abraham was not justified by works, but by faith. Faith in God's promise to provide an heir. Faith in God's promise that his descendants would outnumber the stars of the sky. And he goes on to point out with great power and clarity that there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 8, he rounds out his argument wonderfully. He brackets that chapter with two of the most beloved verses in all of Scripture. Verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And he closes out his chapter For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is a celebration of Christ's completed work. It is one of the highest notes in all of Scripture. The letter could end here. But it doesn't. And in chapter 9, we are greeted with a shocking contrast. Suddenly, the ecstasy of eternal glory with Christ turns to the deepest grief. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Verse 3 is startling. After Paul's confident, joyous declaration that nothing can separate him from the love of God, now he contemplates being so so separated for the sake of his brethren. Paul's Jewish brethren had set up for themselves a system of salvation by works. They had rejected the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ And as a result, they will stand before God offering their own polluted resume filled with their own exaggerated sense of self-righteousness. And the light of God's perfect scrutiny will expose them and they will be judged. The issue of eternal judgment is clearly articulated in Paul's hypothetical wish to stand in their place as one accursed, separated from Christ. The Greek word, some of you may be familiar with it, is anathema. Damned to hell. Paul knows what awaits them. He knows as they reject the Savior, 
they face no hope. The judgment of God is there waiting for them. And in that context, he expresses a hypothetical desire to stand in their place as a substitute were that possible. He is not here merely contemplating of dying for another as we might step before a train to save a little one only to enter into glory. He is talking about exchanging his eternal hope for their eternal judgment. Reflect on that. We should not see this hypothetical expression as exaggeration. Paul's own heart radiates the life of Christ in his willingness to place himself accursed before God in their stead, if such could be effective. This communicates the depth of his distress and the bond of the love he feels for them when he says in verse 2, I have great grief and unceasing distress in my heart. It is astounding. Some of you may know this grief, having friends or loved ones who do not know the Lord. But can Paul, in fact, do this? Can he offer himself as a substitute for his people? No. The Greek tense of the verb here expresses a desire when the desire is impossible. The Jews cannot hope to be saved through the offer of Paul. He is not a blameless sacrifice. Nevertheless, Paul's love for them is felt so deeply and is so deeply centered on Christ that he cannot but contemplate his own eternal destruction to rescue them were it possible. Now his Assertion that his brethren, according to the flesh, the Israelites, are under judgment raises a potential problem. How can the promise to Abraham stand if they are judged? It raises the issue of God's integrity. Didn't God promise to Abraham that Abraham's descendants would be blessed? How then can God turn his back on these descendants of Abraham? Would this not make Abraham a liar? Excuse me, would this not make God a liar? The solution to this is found in verse 6. All of Israel is not Israel. The church has characterized this by saying there's the visible church and the invisible church. The visible church consists of all those we can see in the pews. But the fact that you come to church, the fact that you sit in a pew, the fact that you may be involved in church choirs and church activities, the fact that your attendance may be perfect, does not mean that you love Jesus. There is an invisible church within the visible church. The true Israelite consists of those and only those who have been circumcised of the heart. Romans 2.28 puts it this way, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, 
And circumcision is a matter of the heart by the spirit, not by the letter. All of Israel is not Israel. Well, how does he prove this? How does he make the case? To prove that all of Israel is not Israel requires he do only this. Find one Israelite, one descendant of Abraham, who is under God's judgment. And so that's what he will set out to do. And he does this by citing Genesis 21.12. The blessing to Abraham was to come through Isaac, not Ishmael. Through Isaac your descendants shall be named. Ishmael was a descendant according to the flesh, but Isaac was a descendant according to the promise. All of Israel is not Israel. But one might argue at this point that Ishmael lacked a certain degree of legitimacy, for he came to Abraham through Sarah's maid Hagar. Perhaps one could argue that this disqualified Ishmael. There is a significant difference here in lineage between Isaac and Ishmael. And so Paul offers a second example. The twins. Jacob and Esau not only came from the same mother, Rebekah, but from the same seed. And as some commentators cannot resist the pun... Jacob and Esau were womb mates. They are as close to equal in the flesh as they can be. In fact, Esau actually has some preeminence. He is the older, technically. And so if God is to discriminate between these two when they are young like this, what would be the basis of that discrimination? Paul quotes Genesis 25, 23. The older will serve the younger. God reverses the preeminence of the older. Normally, Jacob as the younger serves Esau, but now God has reversed that. And this grabs our attention. Something unique has happened. Divine favor has fallen upon the younger. And then Paul goes on to explain this further, quoting from Malachi which gives further insight into the switch where it says, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And to make sure we do not try and resolve the difficulty of such strong language through some principle of works, Paul feels the need to emphasize that the act of divine discrimination occurred before they had done anything good or bad, before they were even born. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. That's hard language. It's difficult to wrap our minds around it. It's a difficult doctrine. In what sense can God hate, and especially before they've done anything? Doesn't the Bible teach that God is love? It seems incongruent with the gentle, patient patient comforts that we associate with God. Many today would object to this verse outright were it not so clearly a part of God's word. God hates. 
In truth, the thought of eternal judgment by itself can be difficult to embrace. Some have abandoned it. Others would if they could. C.S. Lewis said regarding the doctrine of hell, There is no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this, if it lay in my power. But it has the full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. But then to add to this the notion that this is part of the very fabric of God's eternal plan. And it makes it almost unbearable. Efforts have been made to understand this in a way that seemingly rescues the integrity of God's character. Some suggest that it's describing relative feelings. It's a description of God's relative feelings toward Jacob and Esau. It's really saying, Jacob I loved a whole lot, and Esau I loved a little less. We see this kind of use of the word hate in Luke 14, 26, where the Lord says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And Jesus is not here advocating that we literally are to hate our parents or our siblings. What Jesus is saying is that there is to be no rival love for the love you have for God. And in comparison to that love and that devotion you have for God, every other relationship could be described as hate. Jesus is using it in a relative sense. And so some would suggest that's what's happening here. Jacob I loved And Esau, by comparison, I loved less. Others will point out that the Old Testament text that Paul cites, Genesis 25 in verse 12, and Malachi chapter 1 in verse 13, that these verses are ultimately speaking of nations, not individuals. Genesis 25 speaks of two nations in Rebekah's womb. And in Malachi, it's ultimately pointing to the nations that come from Jacob and Esau, Edom and Israel. But there is no interest in nations in this text. It is focused on individuals. Consider again the context. Paul is trying to offer proof for his claim that not all Israel is Israel. Clearly, to advance this idea, Paul must identify a descendant of Abraham who was not saved. This is Esau. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, refers to the consummate covenant blessing and curse. The Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, section 7, says this. God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extends or withholds mercy as he pleases for the glory of his sovereign power over his creatures to pass by and ordain them to dishonor and wrath for their sin to the praise of his glorious justice. I emphasize that phrase because you need to understand that God is ordaining sinners to hell. Proverbs 16.4 puts it this way. 
The Lord has made everything for its own purpose, even the wicked for the day of evil. In the contemplation, the internal contemplations of God, these ones are being viewed as wicked, as sinners. God is not capriciously assigning innocent people to damnation. And yet still, it is a difficult doctrine to lay hold of. Is it fair to treat them differently? They've acted similarly. In fact, it could be argued that Jacob was even worse. He was a deceiver. And so a popular explanation of this today is to find this act of divine election ground in God's foreknowledge. God looks into the future to see who will choose him. He looks down the corridor of time and he bases his choice on what he sees. This eases the tension and apparently uh, this, this sense of an apparent arbitrary choice on the part of God, one that has eternal consequences. And one who holds this position might even say, isn't this actually what the Bible says? Does it not say this in Romans 8.29? For those whom he foreknew, those he predestined. It says it right there in your Bible. God looked down the corridor of time and he saw that Jacob would choose him. And he said, I choose Jacob. And he saw that Esau would reject him. And he says, I reject Esau. It eases the tension. But it also seems to compromise the notion that salvation is by God alone. In truth, Romans 8.29 does not say God foreknew what they would do. It says God foreknew them. What does it mean to be foreknown? Well, it means to be known ahead of time. What does it mean uh, uh, then to be known? 1 Corinthians 8.3 says, If anyone loves God, he is known by him. To be known in this sense is to be loved To not be known is the supreme curse. Matthew 7, 22. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Jesus isn't saying I wasn't aware of you. I didn't know you existed. He's saying, I never loved you. You see, to be foreknown is to be foreloved. It is to be loved before the foundation of the world. This is also echoed in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. If you are struggling with this, if this is hard for you to get your mind around, Note that there is a deeper mystery here than what we find with Esau. For there is nothing, there is no basis within the history of Jacob that would move God to love him. It's all of grace. 
Election is not based on works. It is not based on knowledge of the future. But it is not arbitrary. It is ground in God's love. And what drives that love toward any individual? Well, that's left in the inscrutable mind of God. I, like you, have no answer for the question, why me? Now, Paul will later in the chapter go on to give us some additional help in making sure that we understand this and perhaps helping this this idea settle in our souls. And he does this by using what's called the hypothetical objector. He does this twice. The hypothetical objector basically is Paul assuming the voice of one who would challenge this teaching. And then he answers the hypothetical objector. So you see that in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Paul is anticipating that there's going to be some difficulty with this. And in truth, if what Paul was teaching was that God merely looks down the corridor of time and then responds to what we do, he has a very easy answer. There is no injustice in God at all. You haven't understood me. All I'm saying is that God, from his eternal perch and perspective, looked down and saw what you would do, and then he basically categorized you according to your action. Easy peasy. But look at the answer he provides in verse 16 and verse 18. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. The answer provided in verses 16 and 18 focuses not on foreknowledge, but on God's sovereign prerogative to show mercy. And then the second question by the hypothetical objector comes in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? I love this question. This is my favorite. Paul, he's just jumped right in the middle of it. The sovereignty of God and the free will of man collide. If God is sovereign and if he has ordained me to wrath, then how am I to resist his will? I can't wait for the answer. I'm so thankful it's on the same page I don't even have to turn it. Look at verse 20. Not very satisfying, is it? doesn't quench the hunger of my curiosity. I know many of you are familiar with the man Job. He was described in the book of Job as blameless and upright. 
And the evil one came to God and said, the reason that he's blameless and upright is because you've protected him, you've blessed him. But let me at him. I can turn him. And the Lord allowed Satan to test him, but not to take his life. And so Job suffered his health, lost his possessions, lost his loved ones. And from Job's privileged perch here on earth, he began to judge and assess the wisdom of God in the entirety of the universe. And he concluded from his privileged perch here on earth, from his experience, that God was being cruel, that God was treating him as a sovereign bully, and that there was nothing he could do to stop it. In fact, it cast serious questions as to whether there was really any value in Job's life at all. And as he marinates in his sufferings, at the end of that book, God speaks to him. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Oh, you mean there's a perch higher than mine? There's a mind vaster than mine. There's a perspective that exceeds my own perspective. And then God begins to present to Job just a little bit of what goes on in the mind and power of God. Don't think that God's exhausting his resume. Just a little bit. And Job's response, I have uttered that which I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me which I did not know. I repent in dust and ashes. Psalm 139 presents these wonderful expressions of God's knowledge, God's power, God's wisdom. He has searched me and known me. He knows when I lie down and when I rise up. He knows my thoughts from afar. Even before there is a word on my tongue, he knows it all. If I rise to heaven, he's there. If I go to the depths of Sheol, he's there. And what does the psalmist say then in the context of this glory of God? He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 55 reminds us that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so much higher is his ways than our ways and his thoughts than our thoughts. You want to put God on trial? You want to question his justice? Have you forgotten who the potter is and who is the clay? Who are you, O man, to talk back to God? 
And the answer is left to lie in the undisturbed and secret counsel of the Lord. God chose Jacob, a sinner, based on mercy. God held Esau, a sinner, accountable to justice based on Esau's sins. Is this fair? Is Esau's destiny fair? Esau will receive what justice demands. He will be judged based on his works, his free choices. But understand this. In salvation, God does not give up his divine prerogative. He is free to give beyond what we deserve. He is free to show mercy to Jacob ultimately in the substitutionary atonement of his son. Is it fair? Is it fair for God to ordain one to eternal wrath? Is it fair? Is it, for, is it fair for God to ordain an innocent one to eternal wrath? Consider Jesus, the elect son, who was willingly slain before the foundation of the world. The cross was ordained for him. And Jesus could do what Paul could only hypothetically contemplate. Because Jesus alone is without blemish. And he was willing in love to be accursed for us. Let your soul be awed by the grace God has lavished upon you. But understand what God has purposed for you is not merely the rescue from judgment. He has purposed for you an eternal, intimate relationship forged in and fed by divine love. This means our union with God is not merely a life insurance policy. The goal of this union is eternal life with the Lord. And so God has even now poured out his spirit from above that we might now even radiate the life of Christ. Are you loved as Jacob was loved? Then you are called to love as Christ loved. You have been set free by the Spirit to so let go of your own self-interest. You are free now to consider others better than yourself. To be an object of divine election means you have been set apart and purposed to serve and submit God by serving and submitting to your brothers and sisters around you. Hear me out. Your obedience is the pulse of your new heart. 
as the Spirit of Christ presses us ever more deeply into the life of of our Savior, may we be so emptied of self that we, like Paul, like Christ, could wish ourselves entirely given up to serve the eternal blessing of others. I would encourage you to contemplate that. B.B. Warfield concludes that the doctrines of sovereign grace capture with the greatest consistency that fundamental Christian creed, God saves, God alone saves. He decreed, he sovereignly carried it out, and he will bring it to completion to his glory. Beloved congregation, you who are cherished by God, not by works, but by grace, meditate on this, that your election in Christ means that there was never a time you were not the object of boundless divine affection. God's love for you preceded history. The mystery of Romans 9.13 is not that God hated Esau but that God loved any sinner. God saves. God alone saves according to his plan. And by his sovereign power, that plan will surely come to pass. Difficult doctrine? Perhaps. But it is a glorious doctrine. Let's pray. Father, were it not for your grace, there would be no church. There would be no gathering this morning to worship, no inclination within our hearts to lift our eyes heavenward and to raise to you our voices in prayer and praise. We had nothing to offer you but our own rebellion. And you have no need of us as if there was something lacking in your perfect character. No, Lord, the mystery of salvation and election is hidden in the infinite recesses of your divine perfection. We cannot explain it, but we praise you for it and for the immeasurable expression of divine love we have come to know through the fulfillment of your eternal plan in your beloved Son. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing hymn number 469, How Sweet and Awesome is the Place.
Father in heaven, you are a lavish giver. And the whole world is yours. You own the cattle on a thousand hills. Certainly, Lord, you do not need our tithes. But you have so blessed us to participate in the life of our Savior by ourselves being generous givers and involving ourselves then in the lives of others. And so we pray from hearts that do this willingly, not under compulsion. Would you accept these gifts now and bless them to the building of your church, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.